the things one's attempting to do in a situation like that is to maintain that inner harmony or to develop that inner harmony, to stop yourself fragmenting within. And good language, like good music, has that capacity to breathe harmony into the soul. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Terry Waite has led an extraordinary life. Born in 1939, he grew up in the small town of Seitel in Cheshire. Rejected from the British Army because of an allergy to their uniform dye, he instead joined the Anglican Church's Church Army, serving as a lay member of the church. He worked in Africa, where he witnessed the Idi Amin coup in Uganda, and became a hostage negotiator. After successfully assisting with the release of hostages in Iran and Libya, he was deceived by Hezbollah and held as a hostage in Lebanon for five years. During that time, he was tortured and held in solitary confinement. Released in 1991, Terry has written several books, including Taken on Trust, Footfalls in Memory, Travels with a Primate, The Voyage of the Golden Handshake, and Solitude. He devotes himself to three causes, international development, helping the homeless in Britain, and assisting families of people held hostage. Terry, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Uh, thank you very much. So your childhood sounds, uh, sounds quite idyllic, uh, son of the village policeman in a small English town. Uh, was, it, was it that? Well, I was brought up, as you said, in a small English village, um, and my father was the village policeman, and that isn't always the easiest uh, father to have in a, in a, a small community. <laughs> um, because you get into any trouble and you, you're immediately, you know, identified as the son of the policeman. And so you can't get away with any mischief, really, because it always gets back to your father. But having said that, it was uh, an environment and an upbringing for which I'm really quite grateful because it gave me, from the very early days, a real sense of belonging a real sense of identity, which was something that I value very greatly. Were your parents strongly religious? Not at all. My father um, never w w went to church. Um, my mother uh, was uh, brought up as an Anglican and uh, she went occasionally. I went um, because I was keen on, on music and on singing and I joined the church choir. And uh, my father, who was a fairly strong disciplinarian, said to me, well, look, if you start something, you better continue it. So on the Sundays, I didn't feel like going. He got behind me and said, you, you go along. You know, you, uh, you've joined this. Uh, see it through. And so I became a regular attender at church. And again, uh, I'm very grateful for the background that that gave me. It gave me... A, um, an appreciation and love of music, which has lasted with me across life. It gave me a, um, a love of language because in those days we used the, the Book of Common Prayer, um, which has uh, marvelous uh, rhythmic, rhythmic language in it, if you like. Mm. And uh, 
also, it, again, it, it helped me with um, sort of fundamental understandings. And what made you an internationalist? Uh, many people who grow up in small towns don't necessarily look to, uh, to travel to Africa. Uh, do you remember uh, seminal moments of your childhood that made you think of yourself more as a citizen of the world? Well, I always longed to escape sort of the boundaries of that small community. And in those days, of course, uh, to try and find transport um, to get you uh, out of the uh, immediate environment was extremely difficult. Uh, it was very expensive. Um, and so uh, I w got a bicycle. Now, my father again uh, said to me, well, if you want a bicycle, you'll better contribute to it yourself. And so I did a, a newspaper round morning and evening. I used to work in a, a market garden at weekends to save up enough money. And so when I'd saved up enough money, we got a, an old bicycle frame, which he, we had sprayed. My father got the parts, put a bicycle together, and then I could cycle and cycle miles, and I cycled miles and miles in the surrounding countryside. And then when I was 15, I think, I um, started hitchhiking. Hitchhiking was relatively safe in those days. So I hitchhiked around Scotland. And um, then I decided to have a go at hitchhiking abroad in the school holidays and went as far as Vienna, which is about a thousand miles from, from London, just about a thousand. Got to Vienna and I thought, well, oh, this is a long way. I uh, better go back on the train. So I went to the train station, looked out a ticket, counted out my money. I hadn't even got enough money to get me into Germany, never mind back to the UK. So, You'd hitchhike so too to, far. I had to hitchhike all the way back home again. But uh, there were good, interesting days, and it was sort of my first venture into the world outside that small community. And why Africa? Was it that the uh, church was, <clears throat> church army was keen to send you there, or did you have a particular yen for Africa? No, it, it, it occurred rather accidentally, really, like many things in life. Um, I was uh, seconded from the church army, and I worked quite a lot with the Church of England Board of Education. My, my, first, my first main job was an education officer in an English diocese in the west of England with... Um, uh, and uh, I was responsible for adult education programs across that area. And in the, uh, during that time also, I was working uh, alongside the Church of England Board of Education where we were concentrating on the developing of new forms of education, new forms of teaching. Um, and uh, I helped conduct conferences for teachers and for also for leaders in business and industry on leadership uh, methods. Um, and in that process, I, I used to travel. I traveled to the States, I traveled to various places. And one of the journeys I made was to Africa to conduct a conference out there or to assist in the conducting of a conference out there mm. um, for leaders in Uganda. And it was uh, right leaders from across the country, largely to help them with a deeper understanding of uh, intergroup conflict and tribal conflict and what have you. And as a result of that, I was asked if I would go there and work for a period of three years, principally to be an advisor to the new African Archbishop of Uganda, Mambal Nebabarika Sabiti, and also to be responsible for developing a program such as I've been involved in, and also training my successors 
And so we packed up and went out there for a period of years. And then in the 1980s, you uh, you uh, moved into work as a hostage negotiator and uh, had success in both Iran and uh, Libya, uh, and indeed in, in Lebanon. Um, there must have been a real exhilaration, a real pride in being part of the successful negotiation of uh, that, that sees somebody win their freedom. Well, it, it was a, there were very exhausting years. I mean, my first... Uh, real negotiation at a very significant level was with General Amin. Uh, you may remember that Amin came to power in Uganda. He uh, usurped Aboti, and uh, it was a time of extreme difficulty in Uganda. It was the first time in my life that I'd ever seen people uh, murdered before my eyes. And of oh course, um, a, a bishop of the church was murdered, Janani Luwum who constantly stood up against the um, some of the atrocities of that regime. He wouldn't give way, and he was murdered. So it was a, a fraught time. And from that experience, when I left Uganda, I joined the staff of uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, Robert Runcie, um, the, uh, at Lambeth Palace, where my office was. And he wanted someone on his staff who was... Uh, knowledgeable about international affairs and in the intervening years between leaving Africa and joining him in London I constantly traveled the world and worked in most of the trouble spots of the world and I joined his staff uh, and that's when the negotiations began because initially church people were taken hostage uh, and eventually that that spread beyond church people to others for whom I work and yes, I did engage in negotiations in Iran at the time of the Iranian Revolution, when I met with revolutionary guards, um, in Libya with Colonel Gaddafi, and in Beirut. And um, yes, I suppose there was a certain satisfaction in, in getting people out mm. and in seeing desperate people um, and enjoy freedom once more. Because I don't believe, to be, to be honest with you, I don't really believe that anybody, certainly not myself, I don't believe you do something exclusively for for other people, you know, I'm not full of altruism. I think when you do think for other people, consciously or unconsciously, you're doing something for yourself. And I suppose um, that, that was much so in my case. Uh, and uh, the, the, that seems a, a somewhat harsh view of, uh, of your own uh, career. I look at your career and see a career of extraordinary sacrifice. It's interesting that you sort of, you're, you're so self-critical of your own altruism there. Well, yes, but I think it's, I think it's realistic. Um, I, I, I don't view it negatively. I just want to be realistic mm. Um, mm. about what, what, what one's motives are, you know. Um, you know. Sometimes people say, oh, what a wonderful fellow, you know, for the self-sacrifice and so on. Well, I'm an ordinary sort of person and uh, I've just done what I believed uh, I, I should do. And I must admit, what I wanted to do, I wanted to do that. I, I wanted to be involved uh, because in the some of these issues in life, because uh, I believe it's part of my responsibility as a just as a normal human being to try and work for peace and harmony, not just in the world but also within myself. As someone said to me once, um, "Have you ever stopped to consider?" why it is you're so active in working for peace or working for reconciliation. 
And uh, I said, well, yes, I think I have. And he said, well, could it not be that you're working for your own inner peace and reconciliation? I said, you're probably absolutely right. You know, the two are linked. Uh, that uh, we, and I think anybody who's going to be effective and successful in working for uh, peace and understanding in the world um, also needs to take a look at themselves and say, well, do I experience that within? Have I got inner harmony? Because if I haven't, what am I doing trying to create harmony around me? It's quite a, quite a Buddhist overtone to that observation. It's an interesting one. Uh, I want to ask you about the, uh, the events that led up to your capture. You were, you were told, I understand, that, uh, that one of the hostages you wanted to see uh, was, was sick, uh, that you wanted to release was sick, and therefore that you would need to go and see him. Uh, did you think at the time that that might lead to your own capture? I never went on any um, mission to secure the release of hostages without recognising the fact that I was in danger, that there was always a, pro a possibility of being kidnapped or myself or being killed. And uh, I always used to say to myself, well, face that possibility. If it happens, well, no one else is to blame. No one has sent you here. You've gone on your own volition. And if it goes wrong, then take your own responsibility for that. That's been my attitude and still is my attitude, of course. And uh, when I went on that last uh, visit in um, Beirut, um, yes, I knew very well that it was an extremely dangerous situation. But again, I come back to that earlier point um, about recognizing the fact that we, I am not full of altruism. When the offer was made to me to go and see someone who was ill and about to die, or so I was told, um, I decided to go. And the reason for that decision was, I said to myself, if that man dies, and uh, I haven't got the courage of my conviction to go and see him, and he dies, I'm going to have to live with my conscience for the rest of my life. And so there you could argue again, you know, a personal motive enters into it. I don't think there's anything wrong in that. I just think it's necessary to recognize it. And so I went back and, in fact, was captured. Where did they put you? Well, initially, I was put in an underground cell. Um, uh, it was uh, beneath a car park, um, under a, uh, well, a car park was beneath, as I believe, um, a large apartment building. And uh, it, this was a, an underground cell, of which there were two or three cells down there. They were tiled. Um, there was a generator which was uh, providing electricity independent of the building above a very primitive toilet, um, and the cell was so small I could hardly stand up in it. But it's obviously clearly been purpose-built, and uh, there were other other prisoners down there, whom they were, I, I don't know. I did ask eventually other Western hostages if they'd been kept there, but they hadn't in that particular place. So I have no idea who, who the people were next door. I got one visit today to, to the bathroom, um, but such as it was, very primitive structure, and uh, just uh, no furniture in this in this cell. I mean, my blood ran cold when I when I saw what it was because I recognised that these cells had been tiled in order to, to be cleaned up easily after people had been knocked around. And of course, I wondered what my future was at that point. Your immediate reaction was to go on a hunger strike. 
Uh, why was that? Well, I was angry. Yes, I was angry. I was angry with myself for being, um, you know, for taking that risk. I was angry with my captors. And I think if you're anger, angry, you have to do something about it. I mean, I, I've written a, a book uh, called Out of the Silence, which is a book of poems and reflections. Uh, many of them had their beginnings, had their genesis in in those years of captivity. And I mm. wrote one about anger, which is the only one I can remember, actually, um, offhand. It's um, anger is like a consuming fire, seeking all whom it may devour. Do not uh, extinguish the flames totally, but warm yourself by the gentle glow of the embers. In other words, saying, you know, it's a natural um, force which is in everybody, and it can consume you, but um, and you can't uh, ever put out totally the fires of anger. It's forces, a powerful forces within everybody. So try and recognize that force. Don't let it consume you, but let it in some way um, use that energy that's generated there for a good purpose, for creative purpose. Now, um, I can't say that I did that all the time, but I try and kept that in mind eventually. I, first of all, though, to deal with anger, I, I, I went on hunger strike. I didn't eat for a week. And I suppose looking back, what I was doing there was saying to myself, well, you know, they've taken, they've captured you physically, but they haven't captured you totally mentally. Um, you still have an area of freedom. Uh, to make your own decision. And my decision then, I took it. I wouldn't eat for a week. And after the week, they came and they said, well, if you don't eat now, we shall make you eat. And by then, uh, my anger had become more under control. But I also remember saying three things to myself when I was captured. And I'm not sure where they came from. I said, um, no self-pity. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Because if you do, you'll be demoralized. Um, no other sentimentality. Don't say, if only, you know, if only I'd been a better husband, a better father, you know, spent more time with the children. Um, well, you know, you can't live life. You have to live it on from that point. Um, so I somehow tried to keep uh, away from self-pity, away from all the sentimentality. I mean, obviously, it came back. I thought at times, well... You know, I felt sorry for myself. But then when it did come back, I reminded myself that um, that's a fatal way to go. You've got to just to face the situation and get on with life. Uh, and, <coughs> and, and you focused on ordering your day, uh, d didn't you? Uh, what, what, why is it important that one orders one's day in, in solitary confinement? Well, I'd read about people in solitary confinement and uh, I... I'd, see, I'd heard that, you know, people losing their reason when they're in solitary. And uh, I, it was particularly difficult, I think, when I was constantly in the dark. It didn't last too long, but there were times when I was constantly in the dark. Uh, and that was very disorientating. And the, the situation in solitary, I was moved from this underground place. I was moved to other, other places, other locations. But the conditions were that I was always chained. I was chained by hands and feet for 23 hours and 50 minutes a day. Um, I was in a, uh, when I was moved sometimes to a bombed out building, I was in an upper room with uh, no, um, no, no furniture. I slept on the floor. Um, when anyone came in the room, I was blindfolded. Metal shutters were put in front of the window so no natural light came in. 
Um, it was a situation of, um, of extreme isolation. I wasn't allowed to speak or to, with anyone apart from a cursory word with the guards when they brought in food. And I got, as I said, one visit to the bathroom a day. Um, no books and papers, uh, nothing. So it was this situation of extreme isolation. And within that, um, when you're totally in the dark, you quickly, quickly get disorientated. And as I said, uh, mercifully, that wasn't always the case, not being in the dark, because at times I did get a candle, although at times electricity did work. Um, and that was, that was a, a help. But what was particularly a help was when I was moved to a, a building somewhere in, in Beirut, which was near to a mosque, and therefore I could hear the call from the minaret morning, noon, and night. And that gave me a structure. And I think the importance of a structure is that somehow it gives you, again, a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, a sense of order, which you need. You, you, you just somehow need that. And um, when, I had the, when I heard the call from the, from the minaret, of course, then I knew it was morning, noon and night. I could so structure my day accordingly. Which was worse, to be tortured or to be in solitary confinement? Oh, I think to be tortured was worse. I mean, there were two, there were different, some would argue that total solitary confinement is a form of torture. Well, I suppose it is. It's a form of, of, uh, of real isolation, isn't it? Um, but I, 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 I mean, my torture was nothing as bad as, 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 as many people have had around the world, unfortunately, still, still receive. It still goes on. I was simply beaten on the feet with on the soles of feet with cable. Um, and the, the you still have difficulty that, walking because of that of those injuries, though, don't you? Yeah, well, I used to enjoy walking. I'm afraid I'm not so good at walking. I don't think it did me a lot of good in that respect. But um, I, I just think that, um, as I said, many people have suffered far worse tortures than that, and uh, I just think it's something. It's a a form of behaviour that, of course, is internet and is outlawed by the international community, and certainly ought to be, because anyone who commits uh, that form of atrocity <laughs> um, immediately loses the moral high ground, and it's also very unreliable. The reason, of course, they were you know, um, taking, uh, treating me in that way, was because wrongly they believed that I was an agent of a foreign power. When in fact, of course, I wasn't. I was a humanitarian, and mm. the, the torture and the beatings uh, stopped after 12 months when they told me that they believed I was genuinely a humanitarian, and they were going to let me go home. And uh, I was put into good accommodation for a week. Then something happened in the outside world, and uh, I went back from good accommodation back into hostage accommodation. But after that, there was no further um, beatings. I mean, I was in solitary was uh, um, deprived in that way, but there was no further physical violence. What role did your faith play in uh, keeping your spirits up during that period? Well, I think in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, um, I've never been the sort of person to wear faith on my sleeve. Um, you know what I mean by that. And I, I refuse to allow myself to engage in extemporary prayer. That, that's where you know, the sort of prayer you make up your own words and you have a conversation so-called with God. 
Um, I didn't do that because I felt if I did that, I'm just going to get into a situation of pleading with God, oh God, get me out of here. We just become all one way hmm. and rather, rather off balance. And it was then that going back to your earlier points about the small village, that I was grateful that I'd been brought up with the, with the regular use of language in the Book of Common Prayer. So that all that, when I was young, unconsciously, had been committed to memory. Um, and, and there, within my deep recesses of my memory, there was the, the psalms and the services of the church and the prayers of the church. So I could say, for example, as I did, the simple colic, lighten our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord, and by thy great mercy defend us from all the perils and dangers of this night. A very simple prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, but a, a prayer that has great meaning when you're in the dark and when you're afraid and yes. when you are alone. And not only that, that, that language that has a rhythm and harmony. One of the things one's attempting to do in a situation like that is to maintain that inner harmony or to develop that inner harmony, to stop yourself fragmenting within. And good language, like good music, has that capacity to breathe harmony into the soul. And um, I began to write in my head in those years. I mean, I wrote my first book, Taken on Trust, was written in my head without pencil and paper. Again, to keep my brain moving, to keep it working, and to respect language. And to go back to your question about faith, um, I, it, didn't, it didn't vary. It didn't change very much at all. Uh, it may have deepened a bit. Um, I never, for one moment, um, said, uh, <laughs> why am I here? Why, God, did you allow this to happen? Because I don't believe, that's not my understanding of God. I mean, I think we take our own responsibility in life, we make our decisions, and we, we stand by them. We are responsible. If there's one sort of understanding that stands out in my mind is that understanding that we are co-creators with God, that we have a, a role and a, a responsibility in, in creation, in creation for ourselves and creation of this world and it's not a god upstairs who dictates to us you do this and do that and be punished for this and punished for that we take our own responsibility and as a co-creator we try and at least make ourselves in this world a little more of a harmonious place so it didn't vary it, it kept pretty pretty much the same mm. you, upon your release in 1991 you uh, you Put yourself back into society slowly and uh, it seemed to me a little as though what you were doing for your soul is like what we say we should do for people who've been badly starved uh, that the great risk is that if they uh, they just eat as much as they want to straight away it'll cause terrible terrible troubles and so they've got to slowly eat uh, eat morsel by morsel as they recover themselves uh, you went to cambridge and uh, we're in a a fairly cloistered environment in those early years. Did that serve you well? Very well indeed. I owe a tremendous debt to uh, Trinity Hall, Cambridge, because when I came out, I um, was asked to do so many things, and I said, I'm not going to give any interview, apart from one, one, one interview, or do anything un, un, until, um, for, for a period of time. I was elected to a fellowship at Trinity Hall, and I did live in the college, in this cloistered environment. I went home at weekends and uh, went and lived in college in the week and came back into family life uh, uh, step by step. 
as well as back into the world step by step, so to speak. But it was during those days in Trinity Hall that I put down on paper the book that I'd written in my head in those years. And uh, I just sat at my desk and started to write and uh, uh, then took part in um, college activities uh, in the evening and so on. And that was the best thing I could have done. Um, and coming back into life in that in that way, it's uh, something I would recommend to anybody who's been through a traumatic experience is take your time coming out of it. Don't rush everything. Um, and recognize that it just needs a time to adjust to the world as it's changed and to begin to sort out your own thoughts. One of the most extraordinary aspects of your uh, post-release period has been your capacity for forgiveness, including, as I understand it, going back to personally forgive your captors. Well, I've often believed that, often said rather, that, um, you know, we all, ordinary people, uh, have a responsibility in this world to bring about peace. And, uh, you know, we live in such a, such a terrible terrible world in many respects. I mean, it's a wonderful world in other respects, but there are some people who are suffering enormously. I mean, only last night I was reading a document about the concerning people in the Middle East, the number of people that have been displaced from their homes, thousands and thousands. I mean, that's laying up not only for them personal disaster, but it's laying up personal disaster for that region for generations to come as a result of warfare. Mm. And I've often thought, well, what is it that ordinary people can do to bring about a little more harmony, a little more peace in the world? And um, I came up with a vague, seemingly naive answer, really. I said, if only um, people who've had disputes one with another, be they religious disputes, be they political or whatever, if only they could sit down, face each other, and agree to put the past in the past um, and build a new future together, at least that would give the basis for political settlement. Because I, I, I do believe that there can be no political settlement of some of the great issues of this world unless people on the ground are in accord with that and will make it work. You can't impose political settlements on communities. And uh, I said to myself, well, it's all very well you saying that in an interview or on a public platform, wouldn't it be much better if you went and did something about that? So I thought, well, now's the time to go back and to meet with my uh, captors. So I went back to Beirut and I went at, uh, back to the headquarters and sat down opposite uh, one of the leaders of the group and um, said what I've said to you, let's put the past in the past. We've had difficult times, let's try and, you've had your difficulties, I've had mine, let's put that in the past and try and make something creative from the situation. And he said to me, well, he was very surprised that I got to see him. And he said, uh, well, what can we do? And I said, well, I've just come back from the border, the Syrian border, and I've seen people who are in desperate situations, they're cold, they're hungry. Um, can you at least get heating oil to them? Let me have heating oil, heating oil for them. And he said, okay, we'll do it. Well, it was a very simple gesture. I believe he did it, but it's a very simple gesture. It's not going to bring about 
um, massive political change in the area, of course. But it is a step. And again, if, let us say, it were possible for a few thousand people from the state of Israel, a few thousand people from Palestine, to have opportunity to meet and to talk and to put the past in the past and to get out of their system some of the hate that's understandably there, um, at least there could be the beginning of a basis of a political settlement because it'll never be imposed on people who are dissatisfied and disaffected and attempt to do one with another. It's an extraordinary story. Uh, you're, you work too with the, uh, with the homeless in, uh, in Britain and uh, I wonder how much your own experience helps you to connect in a way in which you would have been other, uh, otherwise unable to do with, just despite your extensive experiences uh, in, uh, in, in the church had you not had that period of extreme deprivation? Oh, I think one of the great things, I mean, there are good things that come out of seemingly uh, difficult and poor situations. And out of my situation, one of the very good things that came out of it was this, that I've always had sympathy for people who are on the margins of life. Um, you know, the, the poor and the deprived. I've always had that sympathy within me. It's just natural to have that for me. Um, but in captivity, that sympathy was developed into what I would call empathy. Mm. The, sympathy the sympathy is to feel sorry for. Empathy is to be able to feel as other people feel. And I know what it's like to, you know, now having had that experience, to be treated as worthless, to be kicked around, to have nothing, only the resources that you've got within you. And that... Um, it propelled me in a way to be more fully engaged in some of the works that I've done since captivity. Now, having always had that, that, that desire to work in that way, when I came out, my job uh, at Lambeth had been held open for me. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm a layman. I'm not a clergyman. Um, as you probably tell from the way I'm speaking, I'm not a clergyman. I'm a layman. But my job at Lambeth Palace had been held open. And I didn't take it up. I said, why not launch out and um, earn your own living by writing and lecturing and then uh, give your time to the various organizations and charities that you feel you ought to support. And uh, I, I said, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll try that. A bit risky because I was giving up a regular salary, but I, I, off I went. And one of the first things that uh, I did was help found an organization, uh, establish an organization in this country called Emmaus, E-M-M-A-U-S. Mm. Um, this was founded by a, a remarkable French priest, the Abbe Pierre, whose name is legendary in France. And it's an organization for the homeless. Now, it is a charity, but it doesn't work in the normal ways that charity works. What happens is this, that um, a homeless person, usually a single homeless person, but not exclusively so, male or female, will come into a community. Um, so we have to build a community. Um, will be given a good, a good standard, a good room, rather like a simple travel lodge, that type of room, with an ensuite bathroom. And there are a few conditions. One, when you come into the community, you must leave behind all state support. Uh, two, you must not bring drink or drugs on premises because we want you to be in a safe environment. 
And three, you must agree to work according to your capacity. Um, and work is provided on premises. Uh, the, the public donate goods and so on, which are renovated and sold. So I opened the first community of that kind in England, in Cambridge, a couple of years or a year after I came out of captivity. And um, it got underway. We got a coordinator who lived in a little porter cabin or caravan with a porter cabin. Today, that community has been going now for all those years, 25, 26 years, and has a turnover of um, over one and a half million pounds a year and is flourishing and has got loads of people back into life. And we now have uh, 30 communities across the UK. And my aim is to have uh, another, uh, well, a community in every major, major uh, city of the UK um, before I die. So it gives me an incentive to go on living a bit longer. <laughs> uh, but we're doing, we're doing, we're, we're scratching the surface uh, as far as homelessness is concerned because it's a major problem. But at least we're making a contribution. And I've seen in those years, you know, so many people uh, who've been on the roads for on the road for years, living, um, sleeping out, and what have you. I've seen them come back into life and begin to find personal satisfaction as well as uh, being, um, you know, integrated back into community, which is a great thing. Very satisfying to see that. You've uh, shifted over recent the last decade or so from your uh, Anglican upbringing towards uh, becoming a Quaker, and I think you uh, once described yourself as being a Quanglican at the moment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what is it about the uh, the Quaker faith that uh, that appeals to you now? Well, it always has done. I've always had admiration for the Quakers, um, principally because of their business ethics in the first instance. You know, they were in in the United Kingdom, the, the Quaker families were responsible for some of the big chocolate firms, uh, Cadbury's and all those firms were all initially, um, Fry's and others were initially um, uh, chocolate uh, Quaker families. And their, their business ethics were brilliant. I mean, they really had a, a great care for their workers, they developed social housing for workers, they included workers in, the, in, in profit sharing. And they were real pioneers in, in that field and their business ethics were outstanding. And unfortunately, you know, those, those chocolate firms have gone out of Quaker hands now. So a long time ago, they've been sold on and moved on. But um, the, the business ethics of the, of the Quakers, and their understanding of business ethics continues but secondly, also in their conduct of their of their public worship, they accept anyone may may may, jump, may go along to a meeting, and they place great value on a couple of things which are important: the um, genuine uh, equality of all human beings, no matter what what belief, what what your education standards are. Um, they don't place much emphasis on earthly titles, so to speak but on the fact that you're a human being and we're fellow human beings together. And secondly, on the question of silence, that they place great emphasis on the recognition that um, silence is an important part of, uh, of their worship and uh, that uh, 
is something to be respected, and I, I can relate to that. That's particularly after my own experience of being kept in solitary and in silence for year after year. I find it to be a creative and good experience, and um, uh, I'm very happy to somehow straddle the the, the, the two traditions. See, I'm, I've not given up my Anglicanism. I'm still an Anglican, but um, I. As uh, you quite say, call myself a Cranglican, which is uh, somehow straggling those two uh, rather important traditions. Now, your latest book is uh, called Solitude, and uh, I've got to say, you uh, you have impeccable credentials to, uh, to to write a book of that kind, uh, given your period in solitary confinement. Um, but but what is it uh, about solitude that you think uh, we need to better understand, and how does how does solitude shape you now? I'm particularly thinking of uh, uh, the way in which you use your cottage as a uh, uh, as a writing space and the role of uh, of solitude in in a contemplative life, in a good life, if you like. Yeah, well, I, I I've written this book, Solitude, and I've looked at solitude in from from different perspectives. I mean, the first it begins actually in Australia. Um, because mm. I, I went to Australia and I took a journey uh, across Australia um, into the into the centre of Australia um, uh, to the across the Tanami Desert. Um, you know, you got to got to Alice, turn left, and then go 400 miles across the Tanami until you actually come to the most one of the most remote roadhouses in Australia at Rabbit Flat. It used to be run when I was there. It was run by Chap called Bruce Farrens, Bruce and Jackie Farrens. Um, they've they've left there now. But I went to see Bruce and Jackie, who lived in this very remote region, and also went to some of the big cattle stations in Australia um, to meet with people who lived on those stations and who had um, and been in that rather solitary outpost for generations. Well for years anyway, whether it's not generations, but at least for years, and who found the solitude to be something that they truly valued, that made them uh, complete, if you like. You know, one lady to whom I spoke, you know, had never been into town for 10 years, um, but she just reveled in the solitude. It was something that was natural to her, was wholesome to her, was good for her. But then I looked at solitude in a, a, a different perspective. I was in Chicago, met with somebody who lived in an apartment block, surrounded by thousands of people, and yet was solitude for him was was deeply lonely and upsetting. He was not at ease with himself. He was not at ease with his environment. He couldn't make relationships and friendships. And so that type of solitude for him was crippling, awful. Then I sort of relate the experience of other people. For instance, Svetlana Stalin, Stalin's daughter, many, many years mm. ago, came to, came to England, and I helped her establish herself in England. And for a while, she stayed with us in uh, our home in London. And uh, one, uh, one uh, Christmas, Orthodox Christmas, she said to me, she said, I'd like to go to church. I haven't been for a long time. So I said, yes, I'll take you. We'll go to the Orthodox Church in Princess Gate. And she thought about it. And then she said, well, I can't. She said, everybody in that church will, will be there because of my father. They'll know me. 
and I just can't face them. And so her solitude was an inherited solitude, which was a negative solitude. She'd inherited it from her father, if you like, from her father's misdeeds, and just couldn't couldn't live with that. And eventually left England, went to live in the States and died in America. So, and then I look, uh, well, there are a number of other examples, which I won't uh, bore you with, but then finally, I spent uh, in the book time talking with um, the matron of the hospice who had been with something like 1,700 people on that last journey out of, out of mortal life, you know, the journey we all take uh, totally alone. And she accompanied people on, as far as she could on, the, on that particular journey. And she spoke most movingly about about solitude and the, the, the way in which they and all human beings will have to face it one day um, and uh, go through it gracefully and in a way that's wholesome and we spoke about death and um, how the important thing is to recognize that okay when you're seriously ill death uh, sort of seems to be at your elbow is by your side all the time but in fact, the true fact of the matter are that death is always walking alongside us uh, and can strike us at any time. And it's not something to be afraid of. It's part of life. And somehow a part of, a part of life and living is to recognize that and to recognize that um, the solitude in which, which we um, can enjoy is wholesome and creative and not a destructive solitude. Yes, it's a, it's a beautiful book. And uh, I, I think the, the quote that best sums it up, you have a lovely line quoted from uh, De Quincey, no man will ever unfold the capacities of his own intellect who does not at least checker his life with solitude. Exactly. That's a, yeah, that's a good quote from him, isn't it? I wish I, got, I, wish I could write <laughs> like that. But, <laughs> who cares who wrote it? I mean... What's striking about your life is the way in which you have so successfully checkered it with solitude while being so much in the public eye. Yeah, well, I, I try to do that. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I have been a lot in the, in the public eye. To be quite honest, that's a mixed blessing. It, it's good in one respect because it enables you then to be known and to be able to be perhaps more effective in other fields. Um, it, it does come with a cost also that uh, you can, you, you have to make then deliberate attempts to get away. But on the other hand, I don't want necessarily to be totally away from people. Um, I, but I do find this, that if you can somehow enter into solitude and enter into it and find it fulfilling, um, you are then much better able, in, at least in my experience, to be able to be with others more creatively. And so therefore, it's just finding a balance in life. I don't want to be a complete recluse and a complete, total, solitary person. On the other hand, I recognize it's necessary to have that space in my life. Hmm. Terry, a few final uh, questions. So what advi advice would you give to your teenage self? <laughs> I would say work a bit harder at your academic studies. Um, you know, recognize. I suppose one of the things I, I did lack a bit as when I was younger was a bit of of self confidence. I mean, I, I'm not, I can see now looking back where that started. I'm left-handed, um, 
And uh, in those days, we had to write with a steel nib and pen, ink, pen and ink, you know. And the teacher um, always insisted that we wrote and that our letters had to slope forward. And of course, if you're left-handed mm. writing with a steel nib and pen, you can't do that without smudging the work. And so I could never write um, fluently in that way. And it was a real menace to me. And um, it really held me back and it didn't do much for my confidence. And I never got into writing until much later in life when my father uh, passed to me and gave me his little Olivetti typewriter, portable, little Olivetti. And then I was liberated. <laughs> I found that I've got the most appalling handwriting now, but at least I can type uh, and could type. And then I began to find that I, you know, got a flow of, 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 of writing and could write. And so I suppose I would say, if I look back to my teenage years, well, take no notice of the teacher there. <laughs> write as you want to write, you know. Write in another way if you can. But at the same time, um, just give it a wish. I wish... I had learned uh, Latin um, because I think it's I have such I've got a real interest in language and mm. la Latin would have been a wonderful basis. I didn't, and therefore it's no good regretting that. But um, I did encourage my children, and um, we have four children, three daughters and a boy. Did encourage them to study Latin, but two a couple of them did. They went on to do um, foreign language degrees, and now are fluent in four or five languages. And uh, that's a great, a great thing. <laughs> what is something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to be firmly entrenched in, uh, as an Anglican, you know, believing that, um, well, how do I put it? I suppose my understanding of, of, of faith uh, has really... Uh, grown and, and, and developed in, in way, way beyond what it was when I was younger. I still hold to, as I said earlier, some of those basic points. But um, I suppose I've grown into the recognition that this is a, a, a great and mysterious world, that um, we, we, we don't, nobody can fully comprehend the mystery that is of this world, that religion and the different religions, not just the Christian religion, but the different religions, um, are an attempt uh, to interpret and understand that world. And they have diff different expressions within different cultures. But part of the journey in life is um, not so much. I mean, the, the doctrines of the church, the doctrines of Christianity, the beliefs and understandings of other faiths, they're necessary, they give you a guideline, but they're not the essence of it in themselves. Where people stick to the law and stick to the rigid formulations of religions and regard those as the essence, they're missing the point. Mm. The, the real point is beyond the structure to the mystery and the part of the journey in life for people of all religious persuasions is to go beyond the structure uh, to begin to enter more fully into that mystery that is of God and that mystery which lies in themselves. When are you most happy? 
When am I most happy? I suppose, ah, it's a very good question. I suppose when I can see around me something of the beauty of, of, of this world, um, be in the company of people who can appreciate that and recognize that somehow for a brief space of time, the harmony that I see around me is somehow reflected in, at least for a space of time, the harmony that's within me. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, reading. I'm very fond of reading and I'm very fond of music. I'm actually president of the International Musical I Stedford in Llangollen in North Wales. And music plays a, a great part in my life uh, and always has done. I'm not a musician myself and so far as I don't play any musical instrument. But um, I do love music and uh, I do enjoy reading. And one of the things I've got to work out now, I'm getting on now. I mean, I'm 79 this next month, May. Um, and uh, I've got a house full of absolute, a house full of books, absolutely full of books. So I've got to work out what I'm going to do with all that lot. Because, you know, when you get to, 80 next year, you begin to say, well, the days are shortening. I hope I live to 100. I'll never know. But uh, so therefore, I've got to work out and sort out these things. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, no, I don't, don't think I do, really. No, I don't think I do. Oh my gosh, um, you've earned you've earned the right to have more guilty pleasures than anyone yeah. I know. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to think, really. I don't think I do. No. Um, <laughs> I like. <laughs> that's a good question. It's probably the one question you've asked me that I can't answer. Really, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I, I, I like. Uh, I do. I like chocolate, but I'm. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to ration myself. No, I, I don't think I do. Really, hmm. I gave up. Uh, I used to drink. Um, I gave up a number of years ago, um, largely to lose weight, and uh, I've um, I've never never gone back. I don't regret that. Hmm. So no, I, I can't I can't think. I'm sure other people will tell me that I have, but I can't think what they are. <laughs> and, and finally, Terry, uh, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Well, I've, I've worked a lot in the past with Desmond Tutu. Um, and uh, I've been with Desmond, lived, in it, lived with him in, in his home in, in South Africa, travelled with him and worked with him in the most difficult areas of South Africa during the apartheid years. And I've you know been with Desmond in his home when he's received telephone calls threatening his life. Uh, and on one occasion, I had to go and appear as a witness for him, for his character. Can you believe that? How mm. ridiculous. Um, when he was appearing before Mr. Justice Eloff at the Eloff Commission many years ago, when there was an attempt to try and uh, discredit him because he was becoming too strong a political force in the country at a time when apartheid was, was uh, under threat. And... Um, 
I saw how, in all these situations, he refused to hate. He constantly said that the power of love is greater than the power of hate. And um, that's something I always remember. Um, he was a, a, a great man who, who, who put that into, into, into that belief, into practice in the most difficult of circumstances when he was under constant attack. So I think he is one of the, probably many people in life, but one of the many people whom I've met, who've made a deep impression on me and whom I respect and honor. Well, Terry White, uh, hostage, humanitarian and writer, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Well, thanks very much. And if anybody in those remote areas of Australia is listening, um, I enjoyed my visit there years ago. And yes, I do look forward to returning one day. We'd love to have you back. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.